and that we often don't hold adequate respect for the fact that we come into this world with a predominantly unconscious inner reality and that life, especially if we meet it with an openness and with curiosity and with reverence and respect, will lead the way to our own unraveling. But we can't control it. But we can make, you know, there's that, there's that, there's that, we can't control the timing, but we can show up. And that, that, that shifts the playing field. Welcome back to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so excited to have you. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations, not just about astrology, but about the spiritual path and the personal development path. And I am recording this on a crisp, fall morning. It is the beginning of Scorpio season and the sun is closely approaching an opposition to the planet Uranus, the awakener planet Uranus. And I'm feeling lit. I'm feeling so excited and animated and alive and full of energy. And it's for a variety of reasons. And Something that has been coming through my field as a synchronicity of late is about trusting the unfolding of time. And that's largely what we spoke about in this episode today with Ari Moshe, who trusting the unfoldment of time. So I am in a moment currently of feeling really excited and I'm feeling excited because I've had a lot of breakthroughs recently, a lot of paradigm shift, a lot of ongoing struggles or issues seems to reveal new aspects of themselves that allowed me to resolve ongoing struggles. But I still had all those times of being in the struggle. And there's a way that when we're in a moment of time, we could rail against it. We want time to speed up. We want to be at the destination. We want something to change. And it's happening. It happens at its own timing. And there's things that we can do to guide a process. I think there's things that we can do to accelerate processes. But ultimately, we are not in total control of timing and how things are going to play out. So lately, too, there's I still have things on the horizon that I'm excited about, but I'm tuning in these days to relaxing into the present and enjoying what's happening and enjoying the signs that what it is I'm calling into the future are here now already. So to introduce today's guest, this is very exciting to introduce you to Ari Moshe. He's not here with me right now. This is a I'm recording this after we had this conversation, but I'm introducing you to Ari Moshe, who is the person who taught me evolutionary astrology. He was the first astrologer I got a reading with back in 2012, and I was blown away. It's like, how do you know this stuff? Looking at my chart, I had been self-studying astrology for quite a while, and I 
didn't even really know the frontiers of possibility within astrology before I saw it modeled by an astrologer and especially by an astrologer like Ari, who has such a soulful and intuitive approach to what he's doing. And you'll hear from his voice and his story today, like just how conscientious he is about aligning with his truth um, and how reflective he is about what the truth even is. I did then study evolutionary astrology with Ari in 2012, and that was what really unlocked astrology practice for me. It was after studying that I started to experience the archetypes as alive and as things that I could, you know, not just things, beings that I could connect with and communicate with and receive messages from in dreams or in prayer or in visions. In addition to talking about the relationship that we have with the unfolding of time, we talked about our relationship with God, source, and the ways that we are romantically courting life and courting life as a beloved versus trying to control life. And this is a really beautiful perspective of how to navigate life um, to tune into. Stay tuned for at the end of this episode in the outro, I'm going to read a selection from Cosmos and Psyche by Rick Tarnas, the section called Parable of the Two Suitors, which is about this concept of romancing the universe. I so enjoyed having this conversation with Ari, and I'm pleased to be sharing it with you. Here's our conversation. Hello, Ari. Welcome to the Magic of the Spheres. This is really exciting to have you here. Um, as some of the listeners may know, you were the person who taught me evolutionary astrology. Um, so you have been a really important person on my path, and I really appreciate your wisdom. So I guess let's dive in. How are you doing? Good. I'm so happy to be here. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me, Sabrina. So you are an astrologer and much more than that. Um, what are what would you describe the work that you're doing um, or your orientation to astrology and what brought you onto this path? Mm. I'll start with the latter. So what brought me onto this path? I was in high school at Yeshiva and every once in a while, my in, in my Judaic studies, the topic of astrology and other sort of mystical items would come up. And whenever I would ask about it, I was told that we're not allowed to learn about it. Um, but the fact that it was mentioned to me said that it's real. Like that alone was like enough for me to just endlessly think about it. It's, you know, if it's not allowed, if it's evil, if it's wrong, like I didn't care. Just the fact of it being something that was recognized by my religion, by my culture, um, excited me very deeply. So kind of as I transitioned out of that world and began opening up my spirituality, the very first thing I began researching was astrology from more of the Jewish sources. And then I quickly found that the medieval Christian sources and the medieval Jewish sources are kind of connected and they would communicate with each other and that just kind of opened up the door to buy books and study. And there was a period, actually, Jupiter was transiting 
my natal Saturn in the second house and Scorpio in the second house. And during that time, I actually got fed up with all of the information that I was acquiring about astrology. And the experience that I had was that while I knew in a very deep way that this stuff is real, like there's no question in my mind intuitively that there's a truth to astrology. And I would look around and I would intuitively get what it meant if someone was a Sagittarius and and I just knew there was a truth to it. What I felt I couldn't ever possibly reach was a concrete and full understanding of what it actually means and how to look at a chart and to really interpret it. So I felt all the books and all the information that I had was missing the mark. It felt too concrete, too defined, too rigid. And so there's a lack of the mystery. There's a lack of something deeper that I at that point didn't feel anyone was able to access. So I got rid of all of my books. And that's a very, you know, Scorpio second house experience in the sense of eliminating what for me was very much my most prized and valued possessions. So I got rid of everything. And it was just around that time that a friend of mine asked me a couple questions about my chart and I responded in a sort of pessimistic way and said, you know, can we really know what this stuff means? Um, like my, my rising is Virgo, but how is it I have a Virgo rising and other people have a Virgo rising, but we're all different. And how do we really know what it means for each one of us? And also, you know, who was I before this lifetime? Did I have the same chart? You know, all these questions that at that point just made me feel sort of disheartened about anything astrology related. Um, and he introduced me to a man that he was studying from Adam Ginsberg. And I looked at his books and he also introduced me to Jeffrey Wolf Green. And Adam Ginsberg studied Jeff Green's books. And um, when I looked at Jeff Green's Pluto book, I had an intense emotional reaction. It was, you know, one of those peak experiences in your life where you recognize something. And I was actually kind of angry and jealous. Um, I actually felt like I should have written that. So <laughs> there was like this, and what, what ensued after that point was a very humbling journey for me of, of acknowledging the immense wisdom and beauty that this man was bringing forth and pretty much immediately began studying first with Adam Gainsbourg in 2005. And then I would say in 2008, 2009, I went full on into Jeff Green's evolutionary astrology paradigm. So I consider that time in my life as sort of just a faded moment that my interest in astrology was natural. It was sort of intrinsic. I didn't have to make myself interested. It was just a natural feeling of being drawn, buying all those books. That was a natural process for me, feeling disheartened with all the books. That was a natural experience for me, meeting my friend who introduced me to Jeffrey Wolf Green. So there's an interesting flow of how I've moved with this work that just feels like it was all meant to be. Mm. Yes, I can relate to with that emotional response to Jeffrey Wolf Green's work and also the sense of the path calling us naturally and um, being able to listen to that and hear that. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so these days, Ari, what is on your heart? What's taking up space in your heart mind? <sighs> I 
thinking about that question, what feels most authentic is listening to what my path actually wants to be. The more I mature, and it's, you know, also the more I do this work as an astrologer, as an intuitive guide, but also the more I just live with awareness and returning to the moment, I find that there is this beautiful romantic dance between my experience of choice and simply what life is doing. And more and more I'm finding that my own blossoming, the unfolding of my own journey is not really in my own hands. There's there's a quality of choice and conscious sovereign intention that's within my domain. Maybe we can talk more about that. But the flow and the seasons of my own soul journey are impersonal to my self-concept. It's impersonal to my understanding even. It's moving me. It's moving each one of us. And I'm, you know, birthing a child in, well, I'm not personally, but me and my parenting partner were birthing my first child in two months. And this is a complete radical shift from anything that I've ever done. And you've, you know, you've known me for many years and it's sort of like, a, oh, Ari Moshe is going to be a father. <laughs> That's a new thing. It's a, it's a completely new paradigm in, in my soul journey. And so I'm just shifting everything that I've, that I've known, everything that I've believed, everything that I thought about my life and who I am and how I'm walking. And um, wherever I try to impose my own preference. Now, preferences are great. I mean, they're nice. I, I love, and the preferences are great because it's, you know, it's a way of interfacing with reality and we see these intentions and it's very much a co-creative dance. And I'm finding that the extent to which I hold on to my preferences as a possessive stance and insistence upon how I want life to be, the more I suffer. And the larger unfolding of my reality it, and the generosity of it is beyond often what I might understand. And I think this is something that evolutionary astrology teaches us, which is these cycles of evolution, these cycles of growth, they're not always operating within the realm of what we can consciously grab and grasp and comprehend in the moment, that the force of evolution is very intelligent. It's profoundly aware and the unraveling of our personal karma from the point of view of our individuated Saturn conditioned consciousness, right? Time and space, what we're consciously aware of. Our unraveling is actually a very complex process. We're not, no, none of us really are fully aware of the complexity and the interrelationships in our lives and how it's all connected to a singular root. So watching my own life unfold right now, there's just this deep, fascination and humility and reverence towards what the path of life, the intelligence of creation is doing within and without. And so studying this rhythm, studying the flow of life, and it's not just an external study, it's really about getting to know myself because these cycles, what's unfolding in my life is not just a, you know, here you are and this is what you need to do. Like life isn't operating mechanically. Everything that's unfolding in my life and in all of our lives is really happening inside. Ari. And I'm learning as well. Oh, sorry. Yes. I want to break down a little bit of this in terms of what is the 
What would be the separation between the rhythm that is wanting to unfold and the rhythm that we are wanting to impose? Where does that come from? Mm, it's beautiful. Let's tune into that. I mean, that's to simplify this in a way that we can all very, very tangibly understand. If you're with a child and you're driving this child to the park, this child's life is completely surrendered to your rhythm, to what you are establishing for them. And in the car, this child can throw a tantrum and say, I want to go to the toy store. I want to get candy. And the truth of their journey indeed is they're in a car and that car is moving in a certain direction, but their inner experience is not to be negated either. It's like their personal desire, their personal intentions and what they want their life to become, where they want to go with their life it might sometimes be a matter of, sorry, you're not going to get that. And other times it might be a matter of, you can get this, but you need to examine and explore your relationship to what it is you want and the reality around you. If this child learns how to ask, learns how to communicate, learns how to be in relationship to the driver, the parent, the adult, that's taking them to the park, then there's a greater ability to influence and affect the direction of their own life. What comes to me in regards to this, this question or that you pose is when we think of the dichotomy between maybe we can say free will or fate, we often get confused because from the point of view of the ego, there's absolutely no free will, right? From the point of view of our self-concept, our projection of self, who we are and what's happening is completely predictable. When we are making conscious choices, we're not making these choices from the standpoint of our projection of self. So this child living in a certain story, certain projection of what's happening, where I'm going, where I want to go, a story about the adult that's driving, a story about how their life is or what it feels like, none of that's objectively true. It's all just a projection of self in that moment. That child, from that point of view, from that perspective of self, isn't creating their reality. But the aspect of consciousness that's operating and manifesting as that one that believes themselves to be someone, that consciousness is creating their reality. So whenever I look at my life from the point of view of there's a problem here, that stance is a very specific filter of ego consciousness that limits my capacity to not just see things as they are, but thus my ability to actually make conscious and sovereign choices. When I shift to looking at what is, what's actually happening, that there's an adult driving here, and I form a relationship. So in this analogy, when I begin to interrelate with that wolf, with that adult, and I form a relationship with that being, which means I bring myself into a vibration that resonates with that adult, I'm meeting it, I'm learning the maturity, then I can actually direct consciously where my life is going. So the 
capacity that we all have to make choices in our own life. And, and remind me, because there's a beautiful dream that I received just last night on this very thing, is defined 100% by the seed of our own self-concept. And there's another piece, which is we can only become as self-aware as we're capable of becoming self-aware in that moment, right? Like a child is not going to necessarily, in a moment, they might, but usually not going to, in a snap of a finger, cultivate awareness of who they are and what's actually going on here and shift their perspective to one of, oh, I can interact with the adult. I can make requests. I can speak authentically from maybe the prior state of, I don't like what's going on. You're trying to force things. So we can only evolve from where we are. So a big part of this evolutionary journey, and this is where I speak the web of karma is a lot more complex than we tend to understand, is very, very often playing out experiences and circumstances where we can only try our best to become self-aware. But we're going to be playing out entangled consciousness for a time. And oftentimes that's the quickest or the most effective way to actually become aware of our disempowered state and thus to be able to grow and shift our orientation. Does any of that make any sense? Oh my God, yes. I'm just kind of tripping out thinking about that because um, one of my soul dreams, Ari, like, and I call it soul dreams because throughout my life I have dreamt very often of being in a house or being in a car. Mm -hmm. I have so many vehicle dreams and the dreams involve different people driving or different conditions of the car, different conditions of the road. And it gives me feedback at kind of a spiritual level. It feels of where's my life going? How am I interacting with the direction of my life at this moment in time? Is the road clear? Do I feel like I know where I'm going or is there all this fog and some malfunction with the car? And so I really do think about that metaphor a lot, but then this is also having me wonder about different relationships that we have with God or source in terms of the perspective of feeling um, like a child of source or a child of God versus doing the co-creative, like I'm going to create with God. And I find that those, because I wonder, I hold this question a lot because I had a really, an extended period of time where I really related to God and source as like my cosmic parents. And I was learning a lot about how to ask for what I wanted and how to work for things that I wanted. And it felt, I felt so safe and held and guided and I was asking for protection. And then I had a phase of primarily focusing on co-creation. And I remember feeling a certain grief in that of mm. not having mm. my cosmic parents anymore, like being disillusioned of that. Like, are they even my parents? Is God my parent? Or am I supposed to be, you know, also God creating? And because I've experienced both of those orientations, I haven't since then become fully aware or confident of which one is either objectively true or if they are different stances mm -hmm. for different periods of time. And mm -hmm. so that's an open question that I've held because I still do um, 
pray and ask for support, but I try to listen to the field or listen to the responses that I get inside of me or from reality itself of, is this situation beyond my control and I need to ask for help or guidance? Or is this situation calling me forth to take action and to step up to whatever it is that is being asked of me? Mm, that's so beautiful. I, I personally, I relate to that as well. And I, I think there's a tendency for us humans to maybe move into these extremes and maybe to become very much this, you know, source as this external authority, in which case we tend to look at the world in very mm, two-dimensional ways. Like what's right? What's wrong? What am I supposed to do? Where should I be? What should I go? What's the right way to think? What's the right way to do things? What does God want of me? Or we tend to go to this other extreme of, you know, our power as creator, which in its extreme state can be a delusion of control where we hold ourselves to be more capable than we actually are. And things like getting sick or loss or death or emotions that we cannot control might arise. And it's like we may not even have the coping abilities in that paradigm to deal with that. I think that's so humbling for us as we're on this evolutionary journey because the answer itself really isn't something that you can be like, this is what we are. And this is what God is because it's by very nature beyond these strategies that we try to negotiate with life. And I think that there's more of a poetry to our life experience that is bringing us into the moment. And the dream that I had last night was just this beautiful woman with long flowing brown hair. And um, she was singing a song and this man was philosophizing about the meaning of life. You know, just like, I don't even know what he was saying, but imagine just he was a Sagittarius and he was being very philosophical and talking about things in very conceptual terms. And this woman sings a song and, you know, I got the melody. I recorded it when I woke up and it was in F minor, which I thought was cool. It's like, I've never written a song in F. I mean, I have, I have, you know, dozens of songs. I've never written a song in F minor, but I recorded the melody that I heard and I go, oh, this is F minor. So that was cool. And the song went like this. There are a few verses. And then in, in the dream, I actually added a verse as well. And more or less, this is what it was. The meaning of this life is this moment. <laughs> Live here now. The meaning of this life is to live it. Live here now. And I added the verse. The purpose of this song is to sing it. <laughs> sing here now. And there's some other verses. Isn't that beautiful and so simple oh, too. Thanks for sharing that, Ari. That is so beautiful that you got a song and a dream. Yeah. And yeah, I went to sleep praying for our talk today as well. Just thinking about um, some of these things. So in this field that we're creating, this is what came forward, Oh, which by the way, is exactly what we're talking about. Right. So, you know, I want to go to people ask, I get dreams all the time. Right. So people ask me, how do you get dreams? How do you do it? 
And the most authentic answer that I can bring forth is one, definitely don't hold having a dream as an agenda because the occurrence of them is is always spontaneous. But if I look at my life experience, what is it that brings forth these dreams? It's either psychic information, dreams, knowledge that I have before meeting with a client or whatever, oftentimes political figures or what's happening in my own life every night almost. What, what brings this forth is a quality of sincerity where so often I might go to sleep or just hold something in my heart, like a, a sincere question. And the energy of sincerity isn't one of grasping for an answer. It's not one of looking for what's this mean or how am I going to figure out? It's one that is actually content because there's a spaciousness to find out and thus a gratitude to learn, a gratitude to discover. So just kind of feeling the things that I've been learning about life and surrender and choice and love and holding that in my heart and thinking about this talk with you and feeling my love for you and my appreciation to get to have this conversation and feeling the larger truth of my life and all that I don't yet understand. And um, it's that energy field that brings my consciousness more into a state of openness where we can't say necessarily that I'm identifying with creator, but I'm definitely not identifying with a very personal, subjective, limiting story of self versus the universe. I'm not like, what's the answer for me? It's a very subjective, narrow way of thinking. Like, what am I supposed to know? So there's sort of this space where I'm kind of in between that place of, okay, there's a personal sense of self, a personal journey unfolding, and yet I don't know who I am. Who is this personal self? Who's the one curious about all of this? So that place of inquiry is actually a very open place where the truth of what I am and the truth of my oneness with creator and the fact that there being this individuated consciousness thinking and looking out of these eyes, talking with this mouth is also real. So there's something about the sincerity of this space that seems to make me available to receive. And this is true for all of us. Synchronicity and the flow of life moves in this way. When there, And this is like a Neptune thing. When the space is there, it's filled. There's nothing mystical about it. We can experientially know this in our own lives. Whenever we create spaciousness to actually hold ourselves in this present moment, not from the stance of there's something wrong, something to figure out, or something to achieve, even if it's very well intended, but rather from the perspective of there is something profoundly true about this moment. There's something profoundly liberating and meaningful about what I am, about what's right now. And I'm curious about that. And we allow all of our questions, all that we wish to know, to be revealed through our relationship with this present moment. That's the space where we become available for grace. And that's, you know, uh, maybe I'll speak about romance in a moment, but I'll, I'll stop there. But that, that's the dance. That's a, a foreplay. I guess I'm speaking about it now. It's a foreplay with all that is. Like everything in life can really, I feel, be categorized more accurately as a romantic dance between beloveds. 
And it's, yeah, I'll keep that there. Mm. Okay. So that is really beautiful. I'm like, as you were sharing that, it was having me reflect on different moments of closeness that I feel with the divine or like with my own divinity versus being in a moment and feeling subtly frustrated or longing for something else or feeling like there's something wrong versus dropping into that like oasis where it's like you're in love. It's like you're in in love. Like that's what it it feels like. And that kind of subtle art of finding one's way back into that receptive space. And I feel like you just um, opened up a portal for that with your words. So I also was really excited to hear this segue into romance. Um, <laughs> there's a an interesting thing in um, Cosmos and Psyche by Richard Tarnas that comes to mind called The Parable of the Two Suitors. And it's about the discovery of the mysteries of the universe and does can we discover the mysteries of the universe when we want that information to control the universe? And we're, we're coming at it from this arrogant place of thinking that we, you know, can use this information to like assert our own agenda or does the universe share its mysteries to someone who is genuinely curious and reverent and wants this information to deepen into communion with the universe in like a partnership or an equal or a, a loving way. And I think that that, um, that's such an interesting inner dance as well, you know, thinking about where we're coming from when we want to connect as well as an outer, like, how are we connecting? How are we making the invitation or asking for what it is that we desire? So I would love to hear more about the romantic dance with the universe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, um, what I just thought of now is when I talk to my dear friend whom I'm bringing a child into this world with, if there's any judgment in me, right? If I'm thinking and holding the vibration of, you know, she has this problem or this thing, anything that I'm not, you know, holding as an acceptance. There's no possible space there in that moment for true seeing. And it's that space where I allow everything to truly be as it is and shift into curiosity. It's curiosity for everything. It's like curiosity for, oh, I'm feeling triggered. I'm feeling angry. And like bringing so much devotion and care and attention into, okay, that's right in my belly. It's there. I don't have to do a thing about it. Like just noticing that and noticing the thoughts that I might be having about this other person. And just when we meet what arises, not as a thing to either grab and possess or resist. And that's the classic teaching, right? That our suffering really does root in this neurosis of craving and resistance, either moving towards something or being completely averted and trying to resist something. 
but holding ourselves open to meet what's arising. And it does not ever mean, to be really clear, persisting in unhealthy situations. The, the spaciousness of meeting what arises with curiosity is just that. What we do about that is a, that's what happens next. We can choose. But I feel like that's where grace comes in. And if I want to know my beloved, if I really want to experience deeper love and intimacy and connection with anyone or with life, there has to be a starting point of sincere curiosity. Sincere curiosity. It's like um, if I'm getting in my van and I'm driving to the store and I'm holding in my mind, I'm driving to the store objectively that's kind of true but it's sort of boring too it's like it's not really what's happening and how often we live our lives it's like yeah i'm doing this i'm an astrologer i'm teaching an astrology class i'm talking about this thing that i thought about and i'm repeating what i thought about and it sounds great like so often we live our lives with what we're doing with who we're with with our concepts of our life in a way that is very much possessing a concrete belief and idea of what it is. And it seems re reasonable, right? Like, you know, I was driving to Staples yesterday to buy a ethernet cord and that's true. Kind of I'm driving to Staples, but it's actually not true because in the moment of driving to Staples, boy, there's so much happening. <laughs> <laughs> so much going on. And children teach this to me. I mean, I've been hanging out with a six-year-old boy, and oh, this this guy is like such a teacher. Um, I, I built a, a piano bench for myself and had some extra wood. And he saw this wood. He's like, "Oh, cool! I can practice my skateboarding on it." You know, I don't know any adult that would think like that. Maybe a few. And but this, the, he just wants to play. He woke up this morning, and his mother told me. He said, mom, do I have time to play before we go to school? It's, it's time is not experienced as a, I'm going to Staples. I'm going to school. There's a completely different reference point that isn't bound and really possessed, enslaved by this linearity that we so often have just assumed and accepted as our lives. And even as we grow into responsibilities and, you know, take upon the roles that we are to play out in these lives, playing out our dharma in, in various ways. Because Saturn for all of us is this dimension of there are things we need to do. There's work for us. But even then, we don't need to allow our consciousness to become so conditioned and identified with our time-space reality that we forget that all of this is like, what's that, uh, like that, like a, a limb, um, the, the most the most external physical limb of a immense hidden reality that's actually not hidden at all but it's just right here but we'll think it's hidden if we're just focused on this one little limb that's three-dimensional and physical and exists within time you know, as you're sharing this it it feels like one of the the places that my mind is going is thinking about how to navigate this life in terms of our maybe like our survival needs and the kind of things that grip us at that level while also having this kind of free or freedom in our consciousness if you know what i mean 
say a little more about that? I think like a lot of the sense of wanting to either control things or know what's going on or have things figured out feels very connected to me to like security needs and like uh, yeah. um, food, shelter, money, and what we, you know, are conditioned to think of how we are to make money and all that and how, how to balance not being overly conditioned while also being able to participate in the structures that exist in the world, even though what we're doing collectively in the world is kind of like a co-created dream. You know, it's like a set of standards and practices that a group of people have agreed upon and that there's a certain, you know, so I think that, yeah, I think that that's what I'm, I'm holding as a curiosity. Absolutely. And I think there's something really interesting about how in our participation with the structures of the world to become self-aware of how easy it is for us to then define ourselves according to these structures. And furthermore, to define these structures according to what we think these structures are as structures, because there's actually an emptiness. Like, I'm going to become a father. It's a very genuine, authentic statement. It's like, yeah, it's true. But what is that? Right? When we look at the heart of what it means to be a father, there is an energetic quality of responsibility that's natural. It's arising from within. But the energy of a father, it's not this um, rigid, defined construct, just as much as me driving to Staples isn't a rigid, defined experience. It's incredibly fluid, but I think most people, and this is a big part of, I feel what's healing collectively, but it's also part of the awakening journey for all of us. We meet all the places in our life where we've depressed our consciousness to accept a status quo that basically says, okay, you can be magical and open and spiritual and love and free and giving and trusting of life, trusting. Because there's a part of us that wants to trust life so much. Like we really, really want to trust life. But you can only do that to a point. You have to pay the bills. We have to take care of these core root chakra survival needs. And so there's this place where most of us at a certain point just kind of close up. I had this experience once. This was many, many years ago where I was just kind of curious about what's true. And so I was practicing the work of Byron Katie, which is a beautiful practice of inquiry where you basically ask a question about something, you know, a stressful thought she's mean. And you ask, is it true? Then what do I feel when I think that thought? Well, I feel angry. I feel sensation in my solar plexus, etc. And we basically bring self-consciousness and awareness to the reality that we create for ourselves when we fix specific thoughts onto our reality. Oh my God. So I was practicing this. <laughs> I love this. I didn't... <laughs> it's, oh, you would well, love it. Yeah, I yeah. do this, but I didn't know... Um... I guess that this was also a practice, but I mean, maybe I've heard people talk about it in certain ways, but I think I'll, I'll let you keep talking about it and then say something about it again. Yeah. And you'll love this next part too, knowing okay. it. So I was, uh, this was maybe, this was like 12 years ago. I was sleeping in a tent in Olympia, Washington. 
And I was thinking about it. I'm like, okay, well, let me let me do this practice of inquiry for anything. And I became very curious about just what we're talking about, where my life feels very blank and mundane. And I want to say, too, that I'm not advocating for this idea of everything has to be sparkly and magical. But I'm also not saying that mundane has to be boring and depressing. Rather, I'm actually pointing to this idea that there's no such thing as one or the other. Like there's just reality, which is a present moment thing. And if any of us want to find out about it, that's where we need to look. <laughs> and the thing that keeps us from it, quote unquote, it, capital I-T, lowercase I-T, slash whatever else you want to put there, the only thing that keeps us from that is what we've decided it is. So then the whole co-creative romance really starts when we become curious about the it, which isn't an it, but, you know, how do you speak about it? But it's not an it. So I'm in the tent and I'm thinking about breath. Okay. What are my thoughts about breath? Okay. Breath is boring. It's mundane. There's nothing interesting. And what I was doing was just authentically acknowledging what breath felt like to me. What did it seem like to me? That's all. And and I inquired, how do I feel when I think that thought? And I believe that thought. My breath is mundane. And I just brought awareness to, well, you know, I kind of feel bored, uninterested. And I even like noticed that there's a little bit of a disappointment too, just like a, a disheartened feeling of life isn't important, that my life isn't important. And just bringing acknowledgement to that in that moment. Oh, yeah. And the, the next step for me was who would I be without that thought? And that's the next step in that inquiry practice. And what I came to in that moment was hmm, I'd be genuinely curious about the next breath. <laughs> and there is something profoundly authentic about that for me where all of my existing belief was completely suspended in that moment. And the next breath was um, held in this perfect space of discovery. And, you know, I'm about to say it shouldn't be taken as a thing like, oh, how do I have that experience? Because, you know, whatever, just what happened. And it's, it's what happens in that space where we kind of let go of our possessiveness. Um, so what happened is I breathed in this ball of light. I don't know if it entered my third eye or if it entered my mouth. I forgot. But... It was a powerful, like, you know, push of energy that just entered my field. And my response was like, oh, cool. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm going to file that one. There's something in me that knew in that moment that um, I'm not going to forget that ever. And then that was a powerful teaching for me that I can return to and apply and integrate any moment that I choose to. I love that. <laughs> and yeah, this is um, this is something that I've resourced a lot when it comes to fear and anxiety, because fear and anxiety creates a very visceral feeling right in the emotions and in the body. And I'll notice what thoughts I'm thinking and I'll start to kind of like open up to thinking about the situation in a different way. And I'll throw out some different ideas that start to bubble up inside of me that are 
more optimistic, more gentle, more compassionate, and then I'll start to feel better or see lights. And I go with trusting, I guess, those sensations that feel like I'll get a a burst of energy. I just did it this afternoon Mm -hmm. because I was anxious about something and I stopped myself and I put out some other ideas and then I got this juice like this electric boost of energy through me and I kind of was like well I guess I'll throw out the other thought (laughs) not attach onto it so much but also not even attach so much onto this other thought that's all juiced up like it gave me a vision of where I could go and what I could think of but um you know I've been doing this for a few years now I guess with testing out different thoughts and it keeps me on my toes because it it is a moment to moment thing I can't make like a dogma out of each one that gets a verification absolutely and I work a lot with I Ching um, and I Ching is a powerful guide in my own life um, and I experience, you know, the I Ching, for those who don't know, it's an oracle. You can toss coins or you can even use an online app. And there are a number of hexagrams and changing lines. And basically, it's like a 4,000 something different possible answers you can get to any divination. And these answers contain a lot of imagery and symbology and texts and information that can be read on multiple levels of understanding. And so I often find when I work with the I Ching, and this can be true with tarot as well that the answer I get is often not this, this is the answer from the point of view of the right way, and this is how it is. But life is actually interfacing with my consciousness, with how I'm embodying my sense of self and thus reality in that moment. And if I shift my perspective, the answer that I get changes. You know, coming back to the idea of romance and and lovers, if... If I want to, if I want to kiss someone and I say, Hey, can I kiss you? It's not very romantic. If I just like walk up to them and there's no courting, there's no relationship. So the answer might be no. So then I can be like, okay, I am not going to kiss this person. But if I meet my beloved with a space of curiosity and I'm interested in getting to know them and discovering them and knowing what it's like to be them and understanding how I can serve them how I can meet them, then they might be like, hmm, kind of want to kiss this guy. The space opens up in a way that it otherwise couldn't open up if I was otherwise operating in a more linear, direct, dualistic, two-dimensional kind of way. And I think so much of the life that we're living, and this really comes back to the story of that boy in the car, shift the perspective to a larger view of what's actually going on and become curious about life in that space. That's where our own preferences can really come out. That's where we can actually play and dance and weave in our personal desires because we're in relationship with life and we can plant a garden there. We can actually grow something because we're creating with the flow of life itself. I love this. So there is space for our preferences and our desires. It, it sounds like it's more about the the way that we're holding them and the way that we're interacting with reality. But, you know, because yeah. I think that there is, I think about this a bit because evolutionary astrology and Pluto, it 
can be so like really lead into questions about desire and how desire is a catalyst for evolution. And desire is also an energy that can create suffering, especially if we're gripping and feeling this sense of lack. Um, But on the other hand, there's other experiences of desire where it's this pleasant, like this would be nice. And then it seems to just kind of appear as we think about it. And I noticed that, you know, I think that's a quality of magnetism and that being magnetic or having that kind of gentle relationship with desire is happening in a much different context than the kind of desire that causes suffering. Beautiful. Yeah. Because when we're holding this strong hold on what we want, we're demanding life to meet us on our condition. This is how I want you to serve me. This is how I want me to be fulfilled by you, O creation. But when we meet it, and I love how you said it, it's like, I would like this. We just acknowledge something that would feel right for us. There's so much more space for life to actually unfold itself in harmony. And we don't have to control it. It's almost like we get in the way. Like that child doesn't realize it, but if they're throwing a tantrum, they're going to lose all their privileges. It's just the consequence of that. Like the, the parents will have no other option but to create boundaries and to say, well, we can't go to the park now or we can't go to the toy store. It's not because that's not what's supposed to happen. It's because there's no possibility for it. Life can't open up in that space. And again, so we often just kind of take that as a sign of it's my karma I'm not allowed to find love or I'm not allowed to enjoy or I'm not allowed to make a lot of money. But karma is really bound by the interior consciousness that we're perpetuating. And if we can unravel that consciousness and get to the root, we can actually uncover the source of our karmic reality and the patterns that manifest. And I think that's actually the gem of evolutionary astrology to bring it into that a little bit, because the essence of this work is really looking at the consciousness of the soul. And in that way, being able to take full responsibility for the reality that we are creating. And, you know, we often talk about we are creating our own reality, but when we think of it, not in terms of, you know, this more linear, I had a bad day, so I must you know, I've been thinking bad thoughts. It's so much deeper than that. Understanding how we create our own reality means really getting to the core, getting to the root of deeply unconscious patterns that with all sincerity, most of us simply cannot access quickly enough. Like we can't force ourselves to get there. And that's why I feel there's a, there's a calling for immense humility and respect and reverence for the current of life where we come into these fixed environments, these fixed circumstances, you know, baby, you're totally surrendered to the care of your parents or your family for a period of time. We live out these cycles of life or playing out different karmic dynamics. We can only become as self-aware as we realize that we can. And for so many souls, we need to play out these patterns, these periods of life which will set us up to gather more pieces of self-knowledge. But any notion that we can get to the core of it all, we could even have awakening experiences and still not get to the core 
of deeply ingrained unconscious patterns, even after awakening happens, when we reach a certain level of self-realization, you know, shifting from a time-based perspective to a soul perspective, there are still deeply ungreened unconscious patterns that we cannot force out. So I think the will and the impulse of evolution and growth is something we need to also have immense respect for. And this is where I feel that choice and self-awareness is like this interesting wild card because it's accessible in the present moment, like in any moment. And we also can't force it according to our will, right? It's again, it always brings us back into that. If you love someone, the best you can do is show up. And what happens, what unfolds, you know, you might show up and realize, wow, this person has a lot of anger. And if you really love them, if you really care about them, you'll stay there. You'll keep your heart open. You won't take it personally. You'll allow that to cleanse you. You show up, but what unfolds in our showing up, what unfolds in our choice to be fully conscious, fully present, fully aware to the best that we can is something that's completely out of our hands. And it might take years or lifetimes until you can feel this, this genuine mutual quality of meeting with your beloved, right? There might be this need to experience pieces that are uncomfortable for periods of time. And I speak about this so emphatically because I think it's often not appreciated enough and that we often don't hold adequate respect for the fact that we come into this world with a predominantly unconscious inner reality and that life, especially if we meet it with an openness and with curiosity and with reverence and respect, will lead the way to our own unraveling. But we can't control it. But we can make, you know, there's that, there's that, there's that, we can't control the timing, but we can show up. And that, that, that shifts the playing field. I am feeling such deep peace, like moving through my body, just listening to this insight of yours. And it's, it's an amazing reminder. Um, and actually, no, it reminds me of ways that I've felt when having conversations with you of just feeling very peaceful after and feeling like the the space that you're holding, the ideas that you're interacting with, your presence is very healing. Um, I, this was making me think about the ambition of being on a spiritual path or of wanting to understand reality or wanting to heal ourselves or all of that. And versus the, you know, and when we're coming from that really ambitious place or we just want to be healed a hundred percent now or fix our problems now that we experience the natural unfolding of time as a great sense of oppression or barrier. Uh, And so it's like, we're always being met with this resistance that is from the way that you're describing it, actually just a reflection of our own subjective filter that we're projecting onto the situation. And so to really remember that we are not in control of the unfolding of time takes a lot of the pressure off. <laughs> right. 
a lot of pressure. No, it's just, it's such a funny, it's sort of contradiction because we're not in control of the unfolding of time. And so when we relax into the moment, time also seems to fall away, right? It's like, okay, there's going to be more to learn. There are going to be more layers. But when we're no longer at war with our own unfolding, when we're at war with it, we're creating a time thing around it. We're like putting it on a timeline. We're trying to rush it. We're trying to get somewhere. So when we drop that, there's a completely different quality, which is paradoxically its own arrival, even though we're not complete yet. And I think that's its own level of awakening. And, that there's, and maybe to use a different word, there's, there's this embodied wisdom that comes with that of dropping the struggle and knowing that there's more. So beautiful. So, you know, there's one other thing that I wanted to speak about that I was really thinking about last night. I'm currently writing a book on Jupiter. And I'm doing that via publishing a weekly article um, currently on the New Paradigm Astrology website. And what's been unfolding for me in examining and thinking about Jupiter is how much it really has to do with authenticity. And, you know, these notions of luck and expansion that we often talk about with Jupiter is really rooted in the energy of authenticity. So right now in my life, as I'm building uh, different course offerings and opportunities to share myself and to teach more, I notice how quickly my life becomes crystallized and stuck in a very narrow construct of, well, this is what I'm doing and this is what it looks like. You know, one of the first questions you asked me is how do I describe myself or what do I do? And honestly, I don't know. I really can't say. I'm, you know, an evolutionary astrologer. I'm a musician. And these are all elements that are part of my work. But the, the quest and the thirst and the love and the devotion and the respect for truth and love and intimacy and what is fundamentally true and beautiful and forgiving about life, that's what I care most about. And expressing that in song, expressing that in teaching. And so that's authentic. And we all have those authentic truths but when we try to go immediately into okay i'm a this and i'm doing this thing and i'm teaching this class and i'm going here we lose this incredibly fluid and spontaneous and unrehearsed beauty about who we are and i think there's something so liberating and powerful and we can relate this to jupiter but to speak more broadly there's something incredibly liberating and and permission giving and forgiving in allowing what we do and who we are and how we're showing up in the world to be inspired by this fluid and spontaneous and unrehearsed realization of what we are, what is true about us. Like that song, the purpose of this life is this moment, is to live it. The purpose of this song is to sing it. The wisdom that that gives me, the invitation that gives me, and it actually really helped me because I just launched a course minutes ago before we began this talk that I've been struggling with for weeks. It's a simple, you know, I, I want to teach astrology again and, and do what I've been doing for years, but actually create a solid platform to bring out the most updated and alive teachings in my own authentic way with stories, with personal sharing, 
and to really savor it and take the time. And each time I would create a platform, I would feel like, oh, two hours to teach this course and this class and have these review. It felt very trapped and like the, the magic of it was lost to me. So that dream actually helped me reconnect with my way, which is very much in the moment and to create a space where I'm aligning with my intention. I'm going to talk about Aries. What's Aries all about? And to get curious about it and to allow myself to return to that innocence that's always been in me that I recognize in my students as well that I'm sure you recognize as well, right? It's like when people come to us to learn and they haven't already, you know, been teaching or doing readings, there's a sort of innocence that reminds me of what it was like to be in high school before it became a job, before I was earning money, before it became a thing, before I was driving to the store, where it was just this fluid mystery of discovering what is. And so my devotion and what I'm really excited about is to explore this realm of teaching and sharing and also earning a good livelihood to support myself and my family while staying rooted in the truth, which is we are all just still discovering this. And the truth of our reality, the truth of what we are is something that is very much embedded in our own direct experience. And it's really my honor and my joy to get to show up as a counselor, as a teacher, and a father, and to hold more and more spaciousness and curiosity to learn along the way. Oh, that's so beautiful, Ari. I I love that. Um, and learning astrology from you, definitely something that I felt and picked up was the signs and everything in astrology is very experiential, that it wasn't just something that we read about in books, but that it's something that we can feel and connect to in ourselves. And I've taken that spirit um, with me, I guess, in how I practice and how I teach. Um, and it really was a paradigm shift, um, the way that you talked about it in terms of like, that you can feel the planets, you can feel the signs, you can feel the energies, that they are not just these static things in books. Um, and then even so I love to read books about astrology, but I remember that it's kind of like a, um, I just got an image of like a butterfly net or something. And that things that are uh -huh. written down or put into form, you know, they were out there floating and someone caught them and put them on paper. And now you're reading that. And that can be a portal into a new experience, but it, you know, there's always that inspiration and feeling floating about too, that mm. we can tune into. I love that analogy. That's, and that's, and that's so beautiful. Yeah. And for the record, I think books are great. You want to hear a very interesting synchronicity. So I got rid of all of my books when in 2005, when Saturn, when Jupiter was on my Saturn. Now I'm moving on to the same uh, property. I have a unit behind Michelle who I'm having a child with, and she's an astrologer too. And she has lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of books. And my Jupiter is on her Saturn. Wait, 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 one second, one second. Her Jupiter is on my Saturn. Hmm. 
Hmm. <laughs> so it was Jupiter on my Saturn that got rid of those books. And now it's her Jupiter on my Saturn that brings all of those books back. Like she probably owns every book I owned times 10. <laughs> so it's an interesting Jupiter story of you let go and you follow this authentic path and it kind of comes full circle. It's a very common Jupiter phenomenon, by the way. Wow. Yes, I love what... So I might start reading again, which, which would be fun. <laughs> I love reading too. I do love books. You yes. do, yeah. Yeah. Uh, moon in the third house, which I believe you are too, right? I am. I'm, you know, Scorpio, your Taurus. Yeah. There's something about just always reading and writing with that placement for me. I also want to touch on what you said about authenticity and Jupiter. I love that. Um, and the way that reality opens up in new interesting ways or things flow or synchronicities appear when we're being authentic is a really beautiful mm. teaching. Yeah. And you know, the, the reason why that is so is because reality is authentic. So we, we get complicated with our philosophies and ideas, but reality is, you know, Jupiter is about nature and it's about our understanding of nature and it's about authenticity because nature is completely itself. So there's something that opens up within us when we become true to ourselves. We find that our life flows simply just like everything else in life flows according to its nature. Hmm. Ari, how can people find and work with you? All right. Well, my website is arimosha.com. And I'm actually teaching a community chart interpretation class series. I'm doing this every so often. So did my last one in the summer and I'm starting my next series in January. And what we're doing is we're just meeting for five weeks and it's a way of learning astrology through looking at our charts and connecting directly with one another. So, um, you can check that out on my website and I have a teachable site as well where you can sign up. And uh, in general, I have some music coming out. You could also find a link to that on my website. Awesome. What about, do you do readings, Ari? I do. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me. <laughs> yes, on my website, you can book a session with me. And all of it's right there. I actually just implemented uh, one of those automatic scheduling softwares. So you Neat. can do it online. And yeah, do you, do you do that? I do. I use Acuity. Uh, that's what I'm using too. It's so good. Um, for everyone who's listening, Ari is an amazing astrologer and amazing counselor, really like transformative sessions. And I'm sure you'll feel, feel very deeply seen. So I would highly recommend mm. seeing Ari. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. So if you want to check out those offerings from Ari, his website is arimosha.com. That is A-R-I-M-O-S-H-E.com. Thank you for listening. If you've been listening to this podcast for a little bit and you have something to say about it, I would love to read your review on iTunes. If you leave me a review and take a screenshot before you click submit on iTunes and email that screenshot over to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com, I'll take down your email and 
I will send you a free gift that I'm working on for podcast reviewers when that is ready. And reviewing on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts will work. And now I want to close us out by reading Two Suitors, A Parable from Cosmos and Psyche by Rick Tarnas. Imagine for a moment that you are the universe. But for the purposes of this thought experiment, let us imagine that you are not the disenchanted, mechanistic universe of conventional modern cosmology, but rather a deep-souled, subtly mysterious cosmos of great spiritual beauty and creative intelligence. And imagine that you are being approached by two different epistemologies, two suitors as it were, who seek to know you. To whom would you open your deepest secrets? To which approach would you be most likely to reveal your authentic nature? Would you open most deeply to the suitor, the epistemology, the way of knowing, who approached you as though you were essentially lacking in intelligence or purpose, as though you had no interior dimension to speak of, no spiritual capacity or value, who thus saw you as fundamentally inferior to himself, let us give the two suitors, not entirely arbitrarily, the traditional masculine gender, who related to you as though your existence were valuable, primarily to the extent that he could develop and exploit your resources to satisfy his various needs, and whose motivation for knowing you was ultimately driven by a desire for increased intellectual mastery, predictive certainty, and efficient control over you for his own self-enhancement? Or would you, the cosmos, open yourself most deeply to that suitor who viewed you as being at least as intelligent as, and noble, as worthy a being, as permeated with mind and soul, as imbued with moral aspiration and purpose, as endowed with spiritual depths and mystery as he. This suitor seeks to know you not that he might better exploit you, but rather to unite with you and thereby bring forth something new, a creative synthesis emerging from both of your depths. He desires to liberate that which has been hidden by the separation between knower and known. His ultimate goal of knowledge is not increased mastery, prediction, and control, but rather a more richly responsive and empowered participation in a co-creative unfolding of new realities. He seeks an intellectual fulfillment that is intimately linked with imaginative vision, moral transformation, empathic understanding, aesthetic delight. His act of knowledge is essentially an act of love and intelligence combined, of wonder as well as discernment, of opening to a process of mutual discovery. To whom would you be more likely to reveal your deepest truths?"